Hello, everyone. Like Andy said, uh, my name is Ryan, and I'm a small group leader here with my wife, Becca. If you're new or visiting, I especially want to say welcome. We're really glad to have you with us. Yeah, I'm really thankful and excited to share God's Word with you today. This summer, we've been walking through Old Testament passages in a series we're, called, we're calling Jesus on Every Page, where we're taking a look at a bunch of different Old Testament passages and highlighting how all of them aren't meant to simply teach us moral lessons about what we should or shouldn't be doing or who we should or shouldn't be like, but the idea that the whole Bible, including the Old Testament, is first and foremost about God and the gospel. And this isn't an idea that some brilliant pastor like Brandon or a theologian came up with. It's what Jesus himself taught us in the New Testament, that all scriptures pointed to himself. So last week, Brandon preached on the book of Ruth. And at the end of that story, if we remember, Ruth has a son, and this son ends up being the grandfather of David, the future king of Israel. He's one of the most famous Old Testament characters, and more than anyone else in the Old Testament, he's connected to Jesus as a foreshadowing for all that Jesus would accomplish on our behalf. So I'm excited to show a story about David today. This was before he was a king, though. In fact, when he was just a boy, it's the story of David and Goliath. This is a super, super famous story, but it's also a super misunderstood story because it's often referenced as an underdog story. I don't know if you remember, but this year in March, in March Madness, there was a major upset. A 16 seed beat a number one seed for the second time ever in tournament history. And I don't remember this for 100% certainty, but I'm sure there was an announcer somewhere that, that said, this is a true David and Goliath story. Because that's what this story has sadly been reduced to over history, a mere underdog story. By the way, I hope everyone knows that David wins, okay? Sorry if that was spoiled here, but it's been 3,000 years, so I don't know what to tell you. Um, and while technically this is an underdog story, it's so much more than that. It's more than just a how-to manual on how to slay the giants of our life which is another way that this story has been understood or I'd argue misunderstood. Because if all this story is is a how-to or a feel-good motivator for the little guys, it actually means that we're doomed. And I want to show you that there's much better news. What I want, to, what I want you to see this morning is that God rescues his people in a way that reveals his deliverance and changes their hearts. See, the story of David defeating Goliath isn't ultimately about David. It's about God and how he saved the Israelites in such a way that they'd see God himself as their source of victory and that they'd operate in light of that truth. So let's pray, and then we'll dive into the passage. All right, God, uh, yeah, I'm really thankful to be here this morning. I'm really thankful for everyone here as well. Thank you for building this church. And... Uh, yeah, I pray that you would use my words. I pray, pray that people's hearts would be open to see you as the source of victory this morning. Amen. All right, so we're in 1 Samuel 17. I've got a long one here, so buckle up. <laughs> now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Soca in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephes Damim between Soca and Azekah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits in a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor weighing 5,000 shekels. 
On his legs he wore bronze greave, and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod, and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield-bearer went out ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite named Jesse, who was from Bethlehem in Judah. Jesse had eight sons, and in Saul's time he was very old. Jesse's three, three oldest sons had followed Saul to war. The firstborn was Elabab, the second Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. Now Jesse said to his son David, take this epaph of roasted grain and these 10 loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Take along these 10 cheeses to the commander of their unit. See how your brothers are and bring back some assurance from them. They are with Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah, fighting against the Philistines. Early in the morning, David left the flock in care of a shepherd, loaded up and set out, as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of the supplies, ran to the battle lines, and asked his brothers how they were. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. Whenever, whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. Now the Israelites had been saying, Do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give, will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. David asked the men standing near him, What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? They replied to him what they had been saying and told him, this, will, this is what will be done for the man who kills him. When Elabab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, Why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Now what have I done, said David? Can't I even speak? He then turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter, and the men answered him as before. What David said was over, overheard and reported to Saul, so, and Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, You are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put on a coat of, ar 
a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I am not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them, on, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine with the shield bearer in front of him kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was more, little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh and birds to the wild animals. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here and will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone, the stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. With a, without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from the sheath. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. Then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and to the gates of Ekron. Their dead were strewn along the Sherem road to Gath and Ekron. All right, so we're going to look at two things today. What happened in this story and what it means for us. So I'm keeping it simple today. It's kind of a holiday weekend, right? So we're just going to look at those two things. But um, to start, we've got to begin by understanding the gravity of the situation that the Israelites find themselves in. They're facing a big, impossible enemy, Goliath. The Bible gives some descriptors with cubits and shekels, and I was a math major in college, so I can do those conversions for you here. <laughs> but Goliath was nine feet tall. He was covered in armor that weighed 125 pounds. The point of his spear alone weighed 15 pounds. And later, Saul tells David that Goliath has been a warrior from his youth. So he's been training for this his whole life. And if that is enough, he's kind of like two soldiers in one because he had a shield bearer who went out in front of him. He's super skilled, and he's super strong, and he's super equipped for battle. And, if that is an, uh, and, he, and he's extremely confident. He literally says that he defies the armies of Israel, and he basically laughs at David later. This guy's super cocky, and he has a right to be so. Nobody is beating this guy. He's invincible to the Israelites. And not only is he an impossible enemy, but the cost of losing this battle was incredibly high. This wasn't just for bragging rights. No, this is a winner takes all. Goliath lays out the terms of war in verse 9. He says, If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. So whoever loses here is going to end up being the slaves to the winners. And I can imagine the Israelite soldiers fearing not only for their lives, but for their families' lives as well. 
And this would have been an especially sensitive subject to, to Israel, considering their past history of enslavement. See, they had been through this before. Their people were enslaved for 400 years to the Egyptians, which is well documented in their Bible. And this generation of Israel did not want to experience it for themselves. Because enslavement doesn't just mean that you have to work for the, as the lowest of the low for another nation. It, it means that their entire way of society and way of life would be threatened. They would be subject to the laws and the rules and the ways of life of their captors. And on the flip side, most importantly, they would not be free to live in alignment with God's laws and God's rules and God's ways of life that he had graciously set up for them. So this isn't just like a little trivial battle that they might lose. This is a really high-stakes situation, and they're facing impossible odds. And not only that, not only is this battle seemingly impossible to win, but we see that Israel is unwilling and they're unable to fight for themselves. Verse 11 says that when Goliath spoke, they were dismayed and they were terrified. And later in verse 24, it says that whenever they saw Goliath, they just fled in fear, which sounds pathetic. (laughs) But in verse 16, it tells us that Goliath challenged them for 40 days before David shows up. 40 days. That is just so long for a whole army to be challenged and mocked. And for 40 days in a row, they just took it and ran away scared. Nobody is willing to fight. Everyone is scared. Everyone knows they'll lose to Goliath. And they are just hopelessly waiting for a champion. But Goliath doesn't leave Israel hopeless. David comes along. He accepts Goliath's challenge and slays him pretty easily, mind you. He slings a a stone and Goliath drops dead, which sounds like the most lame battle scene of all time. Like, there's not much drama there. But if we back up, David is far from what we'd expect for who could beat Goliath. David is the youngest son of Jesse. The passage says that he's little more than a boy, so he's like a teenager. He's not even old enough to fight because Jesse Jesse sends him back and forth to tend to his sheep and deliver food to his brothers, which I debated if that's like an awesome gig or a horrible one. He's like a half sheep farmer, half food deliverer, which as an introvert sounds great, but I don't don't know, I'm just not sure. (laughs) But um, despite being small and a teenage boy, he uses nothing but a sling and rocks and slays Goliath. And the question we need to ask is, why David? Why does God rescue Israel in this way? He could have just struck Goliath down with lightning, or he could have dropped like Red Bull and, and machine guns down to the Israelites. But, but why does God rescue, rescue Israel through a boy? It's because David slaying Goliath proves to the Israelites that it was actually God slaying Goliath. It shows them that God is the one who is truly rescuing them. God wanted to use someone who was small and young because the unlikeliness of David's victory starts to show them that maybe there's something else to him winning. It can still be tempting to give David the credit for the win with his savvy sling skills and his experience with slaying wild beasts, but David himself doesn't even allow for this. In verse 37, he says, The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will will rescue me from the hand of the Philistine. And side note, I don't know why a sheep farmer would live where there's lions and bears. Like, why? Just move anywhere else. (laughs) But later in verse 46, David said, This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hands. 
So David's confidence doesn't come from his own skill or his own strength or his own experience. No, it comes from knowing that God is the one who will beat Goliath, that God will save him just like he saved him before. In verse 26, David said, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Which is another way of saying, Goliath, who the heck do you think you are? David is baffled at why someone would dare oppose God. And he's almost confused why Israel is acting in fear. Why would they doubt God? David has the complete opposite posture of the army of Israel and of King Saul. Where they were fearful and trying to beat Goliath on their own, David is confident because he knows that God will beat Goliath for him. What David realizes that is what David realizes that Israel has God on their side. And more than that, God is the one who's really doing the fighting. David understands that Israel's hope is already secured because they have the favor of the one true living God. See, God uses David not because it's cute or because it's a fun story or it's an ironic way to mock Goliath and the Philistines or to give us a March Madness analogy. No, he uses David to show everyone the true champion, that God himself is the champion. And so Israel is saved from their possible enemy. David's victory becomes Israel's because when David slays the giant, the Philistine, Philistines run away and Israel wins. But that's not the end of the story. David slays Goliath and all of a sudden Israel is confident like David. But nothing's really changed if we think about it. Like one guy died and sure he was their strongest guy, but there's still a whole army of Philistines out there to fight against. So what's actually different? What's actually changed? It's the heart and the attitude of the Israelites. Israel is operating in a newfound confidence because they know what David knew all along. God is their champion. Because David was such an unlikely hero, and because David pointed to God as his source of power, Israel was able to see God as their true source of victory. And so God defeating Goliath not only gave them victory, but it changed their hearts. So what does all that mean for us now, 3,000 years later? Well, first we should talk about what the story doesn't mean. Because remember I said before, this isn't just an underdog story because David isn't the true hero, God is. And God wasn't an underdog to the Philistines and he's not an underdog today. And we can't view this story and think, okay, David was really wise and strategic with his sling and his stone, so I'm going to be wise and strategic in my life too. Because what happens when you throw all of your stones and they miss? What happens when a circumstance in your life actually defeats you? What happens when you send out 100 job applications and nothing works? What happens when depression is too overwhelming and you can't even get out of bed in the morning? What happens when a family member is diagnosed with cancer and you're out of stones to throw? Or we look at David and we think that we just need to trust in God to overcome our difficult obstacles. I mean, at face value, that sounds good and it sounds right. We should trust God in the midst of difficult situations, right? But what happens when God chooses to say no to our pleadings? God never promised an easy or pain-free life to follow him. In fact, the Bible promises the opposite. So we can't expect things to never go wrong. And when we do, when they do, we'll be just left wondering if we didn't have enough faith. Did I not trust God enough? And trying to be like David just crushes us. 
The problem with all of this is that we're relating ourselves to David in the story, but we're not David, right? We're not David here. We're the Israelites. Author Nancy Guthrie calls this the ordinary Israelite principle. She says, when we look at Old Testament stories, instead of identifying ourselves with the hero of the story, that we should look for the ordinary Israelites and identify ourselves with them. And if you apply this principle to this story, it points us to the Israelite soldiers. They're the ordinary Israelites here. And we're them. We're peeing our pants on the battle lines. <laughs> but what are we scared of? What is our dire situation? What's our Goliath? Is it tough times in our life? Well, I don't want to diminish trials and tribulations that we face, but we face a much bigger enemy. We face an impossible enemy where the stakes are incredibly high in a winner-takes-all battle. See, our Goliath isn't daily difficulties, but it's sin and it's death. And this isn't an external enemy like Israel faced, but it's an internal one because the Bible shows us that the default of our hearts is to go our own way instead of God's way, that we worship things and people and ourselves instead of worshiping God, and this is called sin. And we think that our way is good. Sin deceives us to believe that we have freedom and that we have life away from God, but the truth is that we aren't free at all. The Bible says we're enslaved to sin, just like Israel would have been enslaved to the Philistines. We're prisoners to it. And just like Israel's threat of being put under another nation's rule and away from God, we're threatened by an enemy that separates us from God as well. Romans 3 says that the punishment for sin is death and that everyone has fallen short of God's holiness. And sin has ruined God's creation and made our world as not as it should be with pain and with suffering. The obstacles that we face in this life are real and they're difficult, but they pale in comparison to the weight of our sin. Israel was frozen in fear of what lay, of what lay ahead if they were to lose, and honestly, we should feel the same way about our sin if we can't find a way out. See, Goliath is the, our Goliath is the eternal punishment that sin brings to our souls and the death and destruction that sin brought to our world. And just like Israel, it's a situation that we have no way to rescue ourselves. It's a truly impossible enemy. But we try, right? We try to fight this enemy on our own. We try to rescue ourselves in all sorts of ways. We compare ourselves to others. We say, I'm not as bad as them, or at least I don't do this, or at least I do that. Or we try the Oprah method. You know, we do a bunch of good things because then it will outweigh the bad. But those attempts fail because our, compa- our comparison isn't to each other. Our comparison is to a perfect and a holy God. And so we'll always fall short. There's no way to balance out the scales of our sin. We end up back on the battle line, just like Israel, staring our impossible enemy in the face, utterly, ho- utterly hopeless, and we desperately need a champion who can fight this battle for us. And the good news of the gospel is that God did provide a champion. He didn't leave the Israelites in their seemingly hopeless situation, and he doesn't leave us in ours either, right? Just like he sent David to rescue them, he sent his son Jesus to rescue us from our greatest enemy, our sin. Jesus was sent to be our champion, and he died in our place to take the punishment for our sin. And just like Israel with David, his victory becomes ours. He rose from the grave and defeated sin and death, And by trusting in him for salvation, his victory gets attributed to us. What's crazy is that the way to defeat sin and death is to not fight at all, 
but to trust in the one who already fought the battle on our behalf. See, we aren't David, and the problem isn't that we need to trust God more, it's just that we need to trust him, period. We need to see Jesus as our David-like rescuer, our champion, the only one who can grant us salvation and new life. And that's what God is revealing to us through this story. He went to the cross for you and for me so that when, to, sorry, to defeat the Goliath enemy on our behalf. Jesus' victory over sin and death is given to us when we trust in him for our salvation. Isn't that such better news today? That's so much sweeter than an underdog story. That's so much sweeter than the pressure of trying to be like David. Letting the story of David and Goliath point us to Jesus is such good news for us. And that's what we're remembering every week when we celebrate communion together. We're remembering Jesus' victory that he won on our behalf. Communion doesn't make you right with God. It doesn't save you. It's a way to remember what's true in our hearts, that we might find joy and peace in trusting him alone to rescue us. So whenever you're ready, there are two tables in the back, one on the left and the right. Go back during the music and dip the bread in the juice and take communion as a reminder of his body and his blood broken and shed for you, securing your victory over sin and death. You don't need to be a member here. You just need to belong to Jesus. But if you're still considering what all this means, if you find yourself still trusting in your own fight instead of trusting in Jesus' victory, we're so glad that you're here, but we'd encourage you to hold off on communion. God's not trying to get you to go through the motions with some religious rituals. He wants you to put your trust in him. So communion might not be right for you this morning, but Jesus is, and we'd love to help you get to know him. But wherever you're at this morning, pray to God and ask him to open your heart to see who the true champion and source of our victory over sin and death is. Now lastly, part of why we take communion is remembering not, that not only does the gospel save us, but it changes us. And if you remember at the end of our passage today, Israel wasn't just saved. After David defeats Goliath, Israel's completely changed. They act in confidence and boldness. It's a complete 180 from where they were before David came along. And the same should be true of us. Believing in Jesus' victory not only saves us, but it completely changes us. It changes us to operate in a newfound confidence and boldness, just like the Israelites. Not to plunder an enemy nation, but it empowers us to be confident as we obey him and as we're on mission for him. When we realize that Jesus met our greatest need and defeated our greatest enemy, it frees us to live for him. We aren't frozen in fear of our impending enslavement to sin or dreading our impending death. We aren't frozen trying to strategize our way out of sin or waiting for someone to come save us. Trusting in Jesus' death is all we need to be forgiven and right with God. So we no longer experience guilt and shame for our sin. And we're not fearful of the punishment that we deserved because the cross has taken all of that away. And we don't approach hard times just hoping that we can trust hard enough to get through them because we know that God has already delivered us from our greatest need. So we approach hard times with confidence, knowing that we have all we could ever ask for. And this doesn't mean that we won't be sad or angry when difficult things happen, but it means that in the midst of them, while we're upset, we can simultaneously walk with thankfulness and joy because we have a deep-rooted peace in the person and work of Jesus. And it also changes us to passionately live for the one who rescued our souls. When we experience God's salvation, we desire to live for him and we have the courage and confidence to do so. 
But what does this really look like? Well, I think it looks like we don't have trouble making tough decisions for Jesus that others might not understand because our greatest fears are gone, so we don't need to fear the opinions of others. And we can joyfully grind away at things that take discipline, like regularly reading our Bibles and praying and sacrificially giving our time to our church and friends and fleeing from sin and temptation and being calm and gentle with our kids. I'm really good at that last one. We don't... (laughs) We don't grumble through those things to earn God's favor because Jesus has already won that. So we do it out of joy in response to him. And also we can be bold and take risks in sharing Jesus with our neighbors and our coworkers and our friends who don't know him. And we do that because we want them to experience the same victory over sin and death that we have. It's been really convicting to think through that list and realize how bad I can suck at trusting in Jesus' victory how I'm rarely bold in sharing Jesus with my neighbors who don't know him, how I sometimes give in to anger and raise my voice at my kids and just wish the clock away until bedtime, and how my attitude towards disciplines often treats them as like a to-do list for an employer rather than a joyful response to my victorious champion. And the default response to realizing those failures is to do better and try harder, but then I'm going back to trying to be like David, But without the gospel, I'm hopeless to be better, just like the Israelites. What I actually need to do is remember Jesus' victory. Yes, I ultimately trust in that that salvation on the cross, but I fail to remember that on a daily or a moment-by-moment basis and let it empower my approach to life. And that's what we mean when we talk about growing in the gospel here at River City. It's remembering the good news of the gospel and consistently applying it to every aspect of our lives. And I hope that's helpful for some of you as well, not as a way to condemn yourself again, that's missing the point of the gospel, but as a way to take inventory of our lives and reflection of the good news of the gospel. Are we living in a way that reflects the power of our champion? Are we operating in light of him, already achieving victory for us, or are we timid and fearful and grumbling our way through life? For others of you, you've tried and tried to overcome sin on your own, and you can relate really well to the hopelessness that Israel felt staring at Goliath. You feel hopeless staring at your sin right now. And I'm really thankful that Jesus has revealed the weight of your sin to you, that you see the dire situation you're in, but don't stay there. Don't remain in that spot. His invitation is to stop fighting and trust in his victory today. He already fought for you. Jesus longs to be your champion. He would love to give you the victory that he's earned for you, so talk to him now and trust in him for that. And lastly, some of you have never even considered that you need a champion. You've never seen your sin and rebellion as a Goliath-sized enemy. Maybe you don't even see it as a problem at all. But I pray that God would be opening your eyes to see that you're in a battle and you're facing an impossible enemy and that you need a champion. And I want you to know that you're not alone right now. We all face a losing battle without hope. And if we don't trust in Jesus as our champ, and we're all without hope if we don't trust in Jesus as our champion. I pray that God would give you a sense of urgency about that today. Author Courtney Doctor had this quote about this story that I'd like to leave you with. As we think about leaving these four walls and keeping all of this in mind, I hope that this is helpful for you. 
We are running after our champion Jesus into a battle that has already been decided. So fix your eyes on the King of glory. Realize his greatness. Remember his faithfulness and keep running after him. Let's pray. Yeah, Jesus, uh, I'm just so thankful that you are our champion, that you went to the cross and died in place of us for our sins so that we can be right with you again. Thank you that the story of David and Goliath points us to that, that it's a foreshadowing of what you did on the cross. And I just pray that we would trust in you alone to defeat sin and death for us. That we wouldn't fight that on our own and, yeah, do things to try and fight that, but that we would only trust in you to be our David-like rescuer. I pray that you would change our hearts to remember that. We love you. Amen.